0: Welcome to the RV Navigator podcast, your RV lifestyle digital home. Visit the RV Navigator homepage at rvnavigator.com. And now, here are your hosts, Ken and Martha, podcasting from their mobile RV studio that might be parked in a campground near you. Hello, this is Ken, your RV Navigator.
1: And Martha, the co-pilot. Talking to you from our at home studio, <laughs> which we will probably be doing for the next few months.
0: Oh, things have take, taken a major change. Last month, we talked to you as we were sailing in the Suez Canal, or at least in the Middle East. And now we are sailing home. And things have changed in a major way because Martha is sitting here with her foot up in a cast. It's blue.
1: <laughs> and but? so am I.
0: <laughs> oh, why are you blue? The
1: time is sitting heavily on my hands. I can't do anything. I, I'm i just so helpless, and I don't like it at all.
0: Yeah, well, that's when you have a cast. That's the problem. But let's talk about spring. It is here, and Memorial Day has turned out to be a very nice weather day for us and for all the RV campers that are out Enjoying the first weekend of the camping season. Summer is here. Start your engines.
1: I think we've mentioned before that we surf the over-55 RVers on Facebook fairly often, which (laughs) alternates between making us angry, making us laugh, and... What I would say today is making us envious of all of the normal people who are beginning the camping season and delighting in having campfires and being out in nature. And I am happy for them, and it makes me miss it even more.
0: Ah, uh, yes. As old age creeps up on us, uh, various infirmaries also creep up on us, and we are stuck at home thousands of miles away from our last uh, podcast so the cruise ended we flew home from Rome, which was a good thing. Uh, we were very lucky not to fly home from someplace like Abu Dhabi. We had a friend who, who came home from Abu Dhabi, and they had to put all of their battery-powered electronics in the checked baggage.
1: And I just read an article today that said oh. that the homeland security guru is contemplating Um, not letting Americans fly with electronic devices in the cabins of the planes no matter where they are going or where they are coming from. Apparently there is some intelligence that is making them feel very uneasy, but the thought of highly electronic people such as ourselves (laughs) flying without our goodies is also making us uneasy. And I think thousands
0: of other passengers.
1: So perhaps they will get this all sorted out before I'm ready to take another flight on a plane. Well, right now, it's just they're thinking about
0: making this uh, ban on European or flights from the Europe, which would be a major issue. Anyway, these folks had to fly all the way back from Abu Dhabi without even so much as wireless headphones. Anything that had a battery, apparently. Uh, cameras, everything. Whew, that it took a long time at the gate and made their travel experience much less fun. So... We can only wait and see what happens with that, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, we came home, and a week after we came home, Martha had foot surgery. Not life-threatening, but certainly life-changing. And she had, uh, it was actually outpatient surgery, which is seems strange to me. This is something so severe. But she had the foot surgery, and they put a soft cast on it, and she tried
1: to run around in crutches, I was very bad at that. In retrospect, I wish I would have gotten the crutches ahead of time and practiced a little because I was very nervous that I would injure my good leg and then I would have nothing to walk on at all. So a word to the wise. Those of you who are younger and more coordinated than I am would probably not have this difficulty. (laughs) But for me, this knee scooter was the better way to go, although I am totally black and blue on my other leg from bumping into it and bumping into this giant sequoia log of a cast that I have on my injured foot. So I'm riddled with but
0: bruises. Unlike joint surgery, which they get you up and walking around and, and get the joint moving immediately after you're done with surgery, this operation involves uh, the Achilles tendon, and it has to be immobile for weeks. And that takes a long time to to heal. So she has to keep it, uh, basically, no weight on it and no movement for a long time. Uh, We're going on uh, June 1st, the premiere of this episode of the podcast and she will be going to check in and see how the cast is coming and have the stitches out and we'll take a look at the at the foot and see how the wound is healing and hopefully the doctor will give her a different kind of cast which will allow us to be a bit more mobile right now the steps are the big problem and so going in the motorhome is almost an impossibility because you just can't get up and down the steps and motorhomes and travel trailers and uh, fifth wheels all have, as everybody knows, a few number of steps for the most yes, part, and sitting on your butt and getting up and down the steps is just not that easy. So,
1: but I should add that while the the surgical site is immobilized, I have very little pain from it, uh-huh. and that's a good thing. That- Something to be grateful for.
0: So we will keep you posted, but for the time being, and I mean literally for a long time, we will be uh, at home here, and you'll be hearing podcasts from us uh, that will be home-based, and hopefully they will be in mono. I had several comments about people who uh, did not appreciate the stereo-ness of the last podcast, and the reason why that was was because we were both using uh, a separate microphone one on the left channel and one on the right channel so <laughs> people said there's Martha over there and there's Ken on this side and so they had a hard time hearing the whole thing so hopefully this one is more monoized and uh, you can hear both of us from both speakers because we know that you would not want to miss one word of this podcast
1: and we don't want you wrenching your <laughs> neck twisting back and forth. I can see it now. Oh, well, that would be kind of disconcerting. My my
0: software used to automatically make things mono, but I've had a hard time finding actual software that will take a stereo signal and turn it into mono. Most people want to go the other way, but in this case, that's the way it works. So that's the way we are. So here we are on a nice day talking about RVing. Wishing we're, we were doing it. Wishing we were doing it, but we we have no plans to rv in the near future so because this is a season when people are coming and and starting to rv and maybe they're going out for the first time maybe they the sales of rvs have been overwhelming for many dealers and so the rving concept is one that people are really buying into and there are all sorts of newbies and as martha mentioned we have been following on facebook several of the the newbie questions and we thought maybe we'd take a minute and answer some of those questions from our perspective because we have been rving for 40 years most of the questions seem pretty simple but if you're new to rving the questions are are logical i'm not sure facebook is exactly the place to get the answers because i look at the answers and people are not giving answers that are are logical the blind are leading the blind. Right. I would suggest that if you have some serious questions about RVing, whether they are about your specific rig or just general campground questions or whatever, that you start with one of the many forums that are available that are specific to RVing. The one that comes to mind is irv 2 the number two dot com. They have very active forum. Uh, section. And by forum, I mean it, all of the comments are centered around various topics. So, for instance, because we own a Newmar Diesel Pusher, there is a Newmar Diesel Pusher section. And so the people there will not only be knowledgeable about, well, they should be knowledgeable. But they will be asking questions which are, are specific to your type of rig, and maybe you can answer or, or learn something from the answers. So this is good. They have sections on general class A's. They have questions uh, section on fifth wheels. And then they have every manufacturer listed. And they have uh, if you're interested in uh, internet while you're RVing, if you're interested in other technologies, if you're interested in in electric electronic surge protectors, they have a section about that. So you've got Go there, and you would log on to the forum that is specific to the information that you need, and you're much more likely to find somebody who has answer to your question because that's why they're there. Or you can share information with other people who have similar concerns about a specific topic rather than just posting it on a Facebook page, and you get crazy answers there. <clears throat>
1: As with many other things on Facebook and social media, uh, the question you always have to ask yourself is what is the – background of the expert quotation marks that is, is giving me this opinion and how credible are they because you don't want to get bad advice from somebody who doesn't know any more about it than you do.
0: Exactly. I would start with one of the forums to get answers to your questions and post questions and maybe you'd like to post some answers too so help people with problems and so if you have a specific brand of rig that you are questioning then this is the place to find out about it but more generally uh, there's so many people who have questions about black tank, and I'm surprised at how many people have clogged up black tanks that they can 't get open and of course, the reason why that happens is is because you let the the poop harden and therefore it doesn 't come out anymore and there's very little you can do about once well once it 's
1: turned into concrete
0: so at some point, if your tank isn't isn 't emptying it 's because it 's likely that the problem is that the poop has hardened and It needs to be blasted out. Now, of course, this means that on a regular basis, you do not leave the black tank valve open. Why? Because all the liquid runs out and the poop stays there. And what does it do? Hardens. Hardens, exactly. So, as a strategy, even when you're at a campground for months, you never leave the black tank open. I empty ours and flush it out about once a week. Uh, Obviously, for two people, that seems to be about enough, and I never let it get full, but you need to let it get at least halfway or, you know, a a decent amount of liquid in there so that when you pull the valve, it goes whoosh, and all the stuff comes out. Now, I also have a black tank flush, (laughs) I have to laugh because uh, there was a, a post about somebody who put their freshwater connection, their hose, <laughs> into the black tank flush, and as you would do, you opened it up. And he just let it open. And what happens when the black tank gets full because the uh, flush is uh, is filling up the tank?
1: It starts backing up into your shower or whatever the lowest point here. No,
0: no, 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 because this is the only outlet for this is the toilet. Oh, I thought the shower is lower. Yes, but that's the gray. Oh yeah, you're right. So the gray, if you, if you, but the gray doesn't have a flush as right, a rule. Right. So because but if it, it gets have, over
1: full, it, you start so if, it yeah, in your and shower.
0: That, and that'll come up in your shower. Your lowest point. But in this case, because the toilet was valve was shut. The only outlet it had was... Everything that was
1: flushed came back up.
0: Came No, it came on the roof, because you always have a vent on the roof, (laughs) which vents the black tank, opens it up to the air. And that's why sometimes if you smell sewage smell, it might be coming from your black tank opening in the roof. But in this case, (laughs) after the tank filled up, the water went up this tube... Onto the roof, and,
1: and then a brown shower,
0: <laughs> a, and it just flowed all over the roof and down the sides.
1: Ooh, how embarrassing <laughs> and disgusting! <laughs>
0: oh, anyway, so uh, you s- understand that you have probably two freshwater inlets: one for the black tank flush. F- which is a limited amount of water, and then, of course, the other one that hooks up to the freshwater f- supply.
1: Now, I'm remembering rigs <laughs> we've had that didn't have uh, that extra freshwater input uh-huh,
0: the, place. In the black tank.
1: And I remember you bringing the hose inside right. our fifth wheel and putting it down the toilet to yes. accomplish this task. I used to
0: have a sprayer right which
1: was much less convenient but still necessary for making sure right. that the tank was totally empty.
0: Exactly. So it had a sprayer on the end and you stuck it down the toilet and sprayed it around and and filled the tank part way so that you could once again use the to get it out. Now I don't know why this is the case but Everybody has been wondering about what kind of chemicals to put in their toilet after they have it flushed out. And, of course, you never use it, you never leave it completely empty either. You always put a couple gallons back into it so that the the stuff has things to float in <laughs> or there's water on top of because it. Because you've
1: never totally emptied it, despite your health no, efforts. I,
0: well, you, you, it, there's going to be stuff and you're going to be putting new stuff in there and you don't want to... And all that toilet paper and stuff, but we've never really had a problem. I mean, if we've this regimen we followed has worked very well for us, and so I would assume that it would work well for everybody. Don't you but put chemicals down that well, kind of
1: dissolve? Ex- well, yes, yeah, yes, I put same idea exactly. As dissolves the lumps. That's the that's the whole purpose of this. As but people he, who have septic. The same concept.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it uses enzymes to... And that's the the kind of the transition that we've gone through in the past few years. They used to put down formaldehyde and other things that were making it smell good but didn't really do anything to break up the lumps. Now you put down a chemical that has enzymes in it so that it will eat the the poop and make it so that uh, it actually will be more of a slurry rather than lumps. So... The general consensus, if you read the Facebook pages, is to put Calgon and half a a cup, which is a lot to me, half a cup of Calgon and half a cup of Dawn dish soap down the black tank. Now, exactly why you would do this, it's not clear to me. They say that it makes the water wetter so that it doesn't stick to the sides of the tank. I don't believe that. Why not use the regular... Chemical. Now we happen to use a product called Happy Camper, but there's a lot of products around that uh, are reasonably priced, and you put down into the toilet and contains the stink and the black water in the black tank. So why not just use that stuff? That's what it's for. I'm not sure why the Calgon and and dish soap and Dawn dish soap is really gotten around the house. It'd be expensive though. Yeah. I mean, that's quite a lot. were not
1: there people who were throwing down ice cubes too and well, them around and letting
0: them the ice cube flash around? The
1: ice cube thing, which I think
0: doesn't really work either, is to break up the no. Is to concrete
1: while it, you're walking while you're driving.
0: Is to. Bang against the sensors and clean them off oh this for just the sensors that 's basically what it 's for because the black tank sensors Never if they' are on ever. the well are always yeah' are always a problem, so some people do that, but i 'm not sure that that works either. People had all sorts of crazy things to me. Uh, just read the directions on the bottle and or on the in our case the powder or drop the the little packet in and let it go that's it 'll work fine there 's no reason to worry about it. Another big question was about tires. People were reluctant to replace their tires at a certain age. They wanted to use the the tread as the primary determinant as to whether the tires needed to be replaced. And some people had stories about paying the price for that because if your tires are old, they are more likely to blow out. And boy, on on a travel trailer, when the tire blows out, it takes out... Uh, A lot of stuff... Many times on the interior, also not only being a dangerous situation.
1: And old generally is over seven years. Is that
0: generally it's seven to ten years is old. Now you check this by looking at the DOT date on the side, and that's listed as year and then a week that it was produced. And you have to be careful because the tires on your brand new RV may not be brand new. So that if you have like we do a 2012, uh, the tires could be manufactured before that, so you would have to go by the manufacturing date, not the year of your RV. Many people are very reluctant to do this because they say, well, the tread is so good.
1: And there's nothing worse than getting a a tire blowout while you're driving, but it strikes me that when we have replaced our tires in our motorhome, they're not necessarily readily available, and you had Uh. to wait for a while to get new ones made for you, so that, that to me is something that you should just plan to do before you need to do it. I would agree with you 100% because what the, we don't want to have is a
0: <laughs> is a, uh, a blowout on the road. And I, I'm very proactive about this, but I don't want to replace them before they're needed. But I know that when I replace them that there's going to be tons of tread life left on my tires. I mean, they're not even going to be half used because these tires are designed to go over 100,000 miles, and that's just not going to happen. And many people find that they are in a similar position, so they don't replace them because they just look at the tread because that's what they're used to on their cars. But this is just not safe on an RV.
1: Sometimes I wonder when I read these posts whether RV manufacturers kind of cheap out on Mm -hmm. the tires they put on rigs. To make the overall sales price a little lower. There's no question about that. And that's another thing you should think about, is whether your tires are robust enough for where you're using them. Well, not
0: only that, but there's this big discussion about Chinese tires, and many motorhomes come with tires manufactured in China. I don't know whether that's good or bad, but... That certainly is something to consider, and the number applies all sorts of factors. And what happens too is people overload their motorhome, or not their motorhome so much as their travel trailer, and thus it doesn't. Uh, the tires don't last, so they blow out. Because there have been many, there are many horror stories about people having blowouts and too much weight. And
1: and we have to confess that we had too much weight in our fifth wheel as well, because we broke the leaf springs twice, as I recall. It's very easy to do because you have this big empty space and all the things that you would like to bring along because you really need them or because just in case, and and there you are with too much load for your rig. And for your tow vehicle. So this is another issue which
0: comes up all the time is how much trailer can I tow with uh, the particular vehicle that I have. I think a lot of people confuse the actual uh, dry weight with the actual weight that they're going to be towing when it comes time to go down the road with their motorhome or their travel trailer. One of the good things about a diesel pusher is is that it has tons of capacity. We are, based on, on our weighing, uh, we are at least two or 3,000 pounds, 1,000 pounds underweight, which is very good for us. But many people, when they get their travel trailer, it has maybe 500 pounds of towing capacity.
1: Carrying capacity. Um, extra, extra
0: capacity. And, you know, that's not very much, especially when you put a couple of people in there. And you will have this big problem. When you look at the weight, it says uh, 7,500 pounds and your your truck can tow 9,000. So you say, well, I've got 1,500 pounds. But you also have to look at where you where you put that weight, one of the very important factors is how much weight is on the tongue, how much weight is pushing down on your tow vehicle. This should be about fifteen percent of the trailer weight, but you need to measure this because this provides the the necessary stability if you have too much weight in the back it 's too light if you have too much in the front, but how much weight is pushing down on your truck, and that will definitely affect its handling so you need to pay very close attention to how your your trailer is loaded front to back and side to side so that it's balanced and it has the appropriate amount of weight on the hitch how do people find that out that's the problem it's not that easy you have to actually go around and weigh it
1: how do you do that you go to a truck scale, to a cat scale at a truck stop, and you have it weighed. And sometimes we've been at rallies where people are there providing that service for a fee. Is it possible that that weight ch- changes drastically depending on what you're carrying or whether you have water in it or dirty of water it in it? Or, of course it does. So any time you weigh it, it's just a snapshot.
0: Right, but you should weigh it. Probably, at its maximum, so that you have an idea of, and we had ours four wheel weighed, so actually each, each of, side yeah. each side, no, each of the four corners yeah. was weighed so that we could tell if it was balanced front to back and side to side so everybody needs to do this, and this is a matter of safety, and no I've matter got,
1: what kind of a rig you have, no matter what, what kind about of, bees
0: well. B's are hard to overload because Because they're so small. And I think anything that, you know, it's a motorized RV, like a diesel pusher or a class A or many class C's, that they're harder to overload because the manufacturer has built all that in. Whereas when you buy, when you have a F-150 pulling a 35-foot trailer, trailer, it just doesn't, they, they can't compute that and that just won't work. It may tow it, but it will be unsafe. Uh, As far as I would think, anyway, that's something definitely you want to consider. How does an RV fridge work?
1: Pretty well, for the most (laughs) part.
0: (laughs) It works pretty well? For the most part. Yeah, we've never really had much problem with an RV fridge, but a lot of people seem to have questions about an RV fridge and the fact that it is dual propane and electric. Two kinds of electric, right? Well, well, this is the real issue, is is that a propane fridge, called an absorptive fridge, is a, a different animal than the one that you have in your house. The one in your house uses a compressor, and it plugs into the power outlet, power plug, and it just works. Everybody understands that and it has little fans on the inside to keep things uh the air circulating and it freezes and so if you if you have a residential fridge in your R V then you're the one in your home. Right. It works exactly like the one in your home. But the R V fridge, even though it gets cold and it looks the same, is not the same. You'll note that on the outside there are vents for every R V fridge. And what
1: are those vents for? To let the heat out. Why is there heat? Because it's sucking the heat out of your fridge. Oh, but how does it do that? I have no idea. (laughs) Well,
0: it uses heat to absorb the heat from the inside of the fridge.
1: Which is counterintuitive.
0: Right. It has no moving parts to speak of, no fans or no compressors or anything. And it uses a heat supply supplied from a propane flame or an electric heat element in order to cool the refrigerator. So you have to have this flow of air from the bottom where the flame is, and it comes out a chimney on the top. Now this chimney can be in your may, might be in your slide, might be on the roof, but there is a heat vent for the refrigerator on the top. It only works when there's heat flow, when there's airflow th- through the vents on the outside. Your refrigerator will not cool unless it has. Airflow on the outside. So, one of the first things you need to check if your refrigerator is not working appropriately is to make sure that there's airflow on the outside. Now, we have had little fans in the chimney to bring the air through the vent. This is good. You need to make sure that there is a flame at the bottom. Or that the electric heating elements are heating and it's through convection it goes up through the chimney and (laughs) takes care of the cooling you don't really have to know how this works but you need to know that there needs to be heat on the outside now this heat is as I mentioned is provided by either a propane flame or an electric heating element not both at the same time but one or the other if you go outside and there's no heat then you're not going to get any cooling on the inside. If you go outside and the chimney is blocked off or is otherwise restricted, you're going to have poor cooling. So in your refrigerator on the inside, the cooling, unlike in a, in a conventional home refrigerator, starts at the top and the leftover coolant goes down to the refrigerator. So if the top is cool and the bottom is not cool, that means that there's not enough refrigerant to Cool the bottom too.
1: What happens if you are, um, as some people have been recently, leaving a cold climate for the first time the season, and you turn on your fridge and it's already pretty cold inside? <laughs>
0: <laughs> what happens?
1: Well, does it do anything? I wouldn't. You just so. shut the door and put the food in and call yeah. it a day.
0: Well, you need to make sure as you're going into warmer climate that, that it's, it's working. Morning. I mean, that's the only thing. Because the absorptive or the RV refrigerator is completely dependent on convection, both for the coolant and for the <coughs> the cool on the inside. It's good to have a little fan inside the refrigerator portion of your refrigerator because that will circulate the air. Most home refrigerators have a fan that circulates cold air. So sometimes it's not a matter of the refrigerator not getting cool, but the fins on the inside just are not convecting enough to to cause the air to be cool. Does that make sense?
1: Yes. And we always had a thermometer in ours, which we would look at every so often, because just because stuff is cool, it might not be cool enough. Right. And you don't want to poison yourself.
0: <laughs> so the other factor that is confusing to many people is that it has an automatic switch which, when it, it senses 110 or a, a plug in power supply, it switches to electric. And when you unplug it, it switches to propane.
1: Which is why when we were driving, we would leave the refrigerator on because it was being powered by propane. And as I recall, the only time we turned our propane off was in certain unique situations like going on a ferry or going through through an undersea tunnel or something like that. That's another big... people have been asking questions about leaving it on. About leaving the propane on.
0: We always left our propane on, but that's obviously a, a personal factor if you have an accident. And of course, we did have an accident where we totaled the rig, but and we had full propane tanks, but nothing—the propane didn't leak. So, if you are worried about a safety issue about propane, then you have to, sh- then you're going to shut it off. But I wouldn't recommend that on a regular basis. We always drove with our propane on. One the sometimes we wanted the furnace on. Sometimes we wanted, uh, we always wanted the refrigerator on and other items too. So Want to go back there and cook or something? So that you have the propane anyway, uh, the refrigerator then also has a twelve volt system which does not has nothing to do with the cooling it 's just the controlling circuit so if it says it 's on propane and the flame is not on outside, then the controlling circuit doesn 't doesn 't know that it just sen- it just sends the signal to turn the propane on, or vice versa so when you are on the road, you want to leave it on propane, and it should automatically switch to propane. But switching between the two, you can have the situation where the propane isn't working and the electric is or vice versa, so that putting the controller and saying, I want it on propane or I want it on electric is, uh, is appropriate. But understand that that sensor on the inside is run by 12 volts. That's run by your battery so that the refrigerator will run when it's on propane.
1: Could it happen that your propane pilot light goes out because it's windy? Well, or that's when another. You're that's
0: another big factor. And most of these uh, are these days are electric start, but if you have one that has a pilot light, which we used to have, then you need to make sure that the pilot light is running. But it has 12 volt and 110, so that's the normal plug-in power, and then it has. The battery, which keeps the controllers, the sensors on the inside working, and that has nothing to do with the actual cooling. So the refrigerator can look like it's on because the battery is on, or if the battery is, is low, it will then uh, not sense that either. So that's a brief lesson in in refrigerators. Do you understand this?
1: Pretty much. I mean,
0: you understand the working of it. You don't have to understand how the refrigerator actually works.
1: And even though they have their quirks, like... like (laughs) starting fires in your rig. I always liked the idea of having a refrigerator that had more than one way to cool Uh because I felt like I was hedging our bets because systems fail, and sometimes um, the power wasn't good, but you knew that the propane would keep things cool or vice versa. Um, I liked the multiple possibilities. That was good, I thought. I would definitely agree with that.
0: And we always had good luck with our RV fridge, but we certainly liked the. (laughs) And
1: again, you replaced it because it was starting, what was it, the insulation was starting? Well, if you
0: ever smell ammonia, yeah. that means that the refrigerant is leaking out of your refrigerator, and you better get out of your RV right away and check it out. Because, uh, Or if you see green stuff on the inside of your... Compartment on the outside, but you need to check that compartment on the outside fairly regularly because spiders get in there and they start to make nests and they, so you know, I, causes I trouble
1: with that too.
0: Yeah, those nozzles need to be cleaned out regularly because it gets crapped up. There are a number of people who have asked about boondocking.
1: In in fact, they said, what the hell is boondocking?
0: Yeah, well, boondocking, of course, is living without connections and uh, parking your RV in in remote locations where you don't have any hookups. Or in a Walmart
1: parking lot where you have no hookups.
0: Now, just as a a kind of a overall rule, and I'll probably get blowback because of this, but my general thought would be that if you have a 12-volt battery... Instead of two six volts, you probably shouldn't boondock. A twelve volt battery, just and probably a single one, just will not provide you with the power that you need in order to boondock. Even and for I've overnight? Had, maybe, maybe not, depending on what you're doing. And that's the that's the real question. And so many people have talked about, well, I parked overnight and I tried to watch a little TV and I, you know, and things were going and when I got up in the morning, my battery was dead. Well, and then how many batteries do you have? Well, I have a one 12-volt battery. Well, that's just not going to do it. That one 12-volt battery is kind of for emergency use only and maybe a couple hours while you're sitting on the road. But if you are doing any serious boondocking, you need a bank of six-volt batteries, which will provide you with enough power to go for a couple of days. Solar, okay, but that only charges the batteries, and then you need an inverter to get some power for your 110 volt things we as we mentioned when we went to a couple of the rv shows we asked the the salesman how long will this one 12 volt battery run my residential refrigerator and they would say
1: they were very
0: optimistic (laughs) very optimistic and we know that's wrong so look at your batteries if you have one battery you probably shouldn't plan on doing any boondocking. If you have a bank of 6-volt batteries, you're in much better shape. That's just kind of a, a standard rule. To so why of. are two 6s better than one twelve? Because they can be discharged further and they can—they have more capacity and they're more designed for deep cycling. And this is another issue. People say, well, my batteries are only a year old and they're going bad already. They don't hold their charge. That's because you've discharged them below 50%. So if you have a 200-amp battery bank, you have only 100 amps worth of juice that you can use. Because at 50%, you should start recharging them again. And how do you do that? Well, either solar or a generator.
1: Or plug-in or drive. Good.
0: Yes, but those things are not possible on boondocking days. When you're boondocking, yeah. Right. So think about it. The batteries need to be have enough capacity so that you can run all the things that you want. And I don't want to get into that here, but there is a lot to that. And boondocking is something that you can definitely do and we have done for quite a long time, but you need to plan for it. And you need to go to one of the forums and read about all the details. And I'm sure there's a solar forum to figure out that in a battery forum.
1: Must be. I don't know.
0: With the sales of, of RVs going up and up and up, it seems like, and I read this article, manufacturers are expected to ship 446,000 RVs in 2017. This is up 3.6% from last year's 430,000. Even more encouraging for the industry is the age of the buyers. Sales are being largely driven by younger enthusiasts seeking cheap, versatile vacation travel, not just retirees looking to tour the country in motorhomes. Industry experts say that low gas prices, favorable interest rates, and increased interest in the outdoors mean that more Americans than ever see this as a good time to buy an RV. Uh, So this is good as long as you don't want to get an RV site.
1: The more of us there are on the road, the more demand there is on the campgrounds. So
0: I'm going to kind of put a question to our listeners.
1: Have you been having more difficulties... Findings,
0: Being that we have not RV for sights. several months, yeah. have you had a trouble problem getting RVs sites? We of course kind of camp in the off season, uh, shoulder seasons, and in the winter, so we generally don't have too much trouble. We don't make plans far in advance, except in Florida, Florida. when we or in, in destination places where we know there's going to be a crowd. Or on California, a weekend, I like, think, like Memorial more, Day weekend, California was sometimes. more difficult too. But we didn't have any trouble going up the California coast. Really, I mean, we found a place every.
1: We we would, always, no. we would call ahead, but we wouldn't reserve way ahead. Right,
0: and there are some people that have you know their whole plan
1: the whole thing out. Yeah, crazy.
0: We don't like to do that. No, but is it hard to find? Is it hard for you to find campgrounds?
1: And I and I'm not questioning, as Ken said, the Memorial Day, Fourth of July type weekends, but just other times when you want to go camping throughout the summer because it does stand to reason that if more people are buying RVs there are more people out there trying to park them here and there and of course the <laughs> the cameras are getting more and more expensive
0: and we found an extreme I couldn't believe it. This is unbelievable. In,
1: in my mind, the most expensive place to camp that we have been has been in the Florida Keys. And right. they, they are limited because the keys are very small. And they book up like three seconds after the, the bookings open. On state parks, yeah. And, and certainly in the winter, you can expect to pay well over $100 a night. <laughs> Especially if you're not there long-term and and you can't get a reservation long-term because they're so booked up. So I thought that the keys were the worst. And we were looking at
0: sites over $100.
1: Right. But I was very wrong. I can't believe this campground.
0: This campground.
1: In California.
0: If you want to stay at the Newport Dunes RV Resort right along the artificial beach in what is billed as a super site, which is 35 feet by 45 feet. Not that big. Moderately super. <laughs> that's not really a super site in my definition. And it's on sand. You will have to pay up to, I have a hard time even saying this. <laughs> you will have to rob a bank before you stay there. $479
1: a night at peak times during the busy summer season. And not, Yes, that's per night. And not only that, but when we looked up what people had to say about this park, they weren't all that enamored about the park. It sounds like you go there for the view and the location. But in terms of uh, uh, being a nice resort, they were not all that thrilled about it. How, where do they get off? Well, 400 So that's $1,000 for, and,
0: and they have a two night minimum, so that's almost $1,000 for campground fees.
1: That, Unbelievable. That would be a time when I might try a motel. Although maybe they're really pricey there too. I, we don't know that area.
0: And if you don't want a super site, you can get lesser sites, and they go all the way down to $275 a night.
1: A bargain! Oh,
0: my God. Can you believe that?
1: Now, at the other end of the scale... It's free RV A lot of people places. these days
0: are looking for free. As we mentioned uh, in that article about the sales, that there are a lot of new RVers that are looking for inexpensive campgrounds. Well, they actually say cheap. Um, they, they think of RVing as cheap travel. And a versatile vacation. But one of the things they're looking for is cheap. And if you are not aware of this, there is a nice website, which we've been a member of for a long time, called Overnight RV Parking. This is a a, a website that will help you find free or very low-cost places to stay while traveling in your RV. And we, as you know, when you're traveling down, you know, going three or 400 miles a day, you're just looking for a place to spend the night. And we have found some good ones. And w- with the help of the overnight, website
1: OvernightRVParking.com. dot com
0: right, and things like Cabela's, which we found uh, I think we mentioned that a few times uh, because we 've stayed there last year, and very nice overnight parking, boondocking, of course, but uh, for an overnight you can you can usually boondock uh, and just park.
1: And I think most people know that Walmarts are often a place to stay, but you have to be very careful and you can't assume that a Walmart is a place for you to stay because the campgrounds in many areas are obviously opposed to this concept because they would rather have you come and stay in their property and spend... $30, $40 Thirty, forty dollars a night, even though all you're going to do is drive in there and take a a good night's sleep and drive out again. So they lobby local legislators to ban overnight parking in places like WalMarts. And the um, link we're going to put on our website for this month shows you a map of the United States with RV unfriendly places. And when you look at it, your heart will sink because it's virtually the whole state of Florida and the whole coast of California and the entire Northeastern United States and some other urban areas. But experience tells me that the banning free RVing is a much more of a local decision mm-hmm. and so it really will vary even from town to town. So you want to do a little research before you just pull off the road By and, using this. and assume that you can stay in a Walmart and this website will tell you whether things are right. permitted or not. Now we also use the Casino Camper right. which, website casinos which, are also which is very good not this one, right? right. It's a different right. one. And um, casinos sometimes are not exactly on the main drag which is usually where we try to overnight but they've been very affordable or free alternatives Um, and and again a reasonable way to just pull off and stay for the night and eat at the buffet and then you don't have to cook.
0: It's been a wonderful (laughs) experience. Lots of places welcome us. Walmart company policy for example is to allow overnight parking. Sam Walton, the founder, was an RVer but astutely we realized that the RVers who overnight in his lots bought groceries and supplies from his store But corporate policy is trumped when a local ordinance bans overnight parking. As we've dug into this, we've encountered some pretty powerful players aligned against free RV overnighting and behind anti-RV laws. The biggest is the 3,000-member National Association of RV Campgrounds because we're taking money away from them. And they have decided that they are going to lobby against free parking and that, in many communities, as Martha just mentioned, have had laws put in place that ban overnight parking in parking lots.
1: And, of course, the other thing that can make you become unwelcome is if RVers are not courteous uh, when they use these free places and don't stay there for days on end and put out their lawn chairs and look like they've moved in. Um, You want to be sensitive to the fact that that is a business and that's their primary purpose in being there. Right. And they are not a campground, and you shouldn't treat them that way.
0: Right, and that means don't stay for a long time, don't put out the chairs, don't put out the awning, you know, do the minimum that you can to get by. And most of the time we're there just for the the overnight, not even during the day. So we pull in late and leave, <laughs> I would like to say we leave early, but...
1: Early for us. Early
0: for us, but we are, uh, you know, not really using it as a campground. And I'm not going to be using the pools in the, uh, at a campground or th- anything, so why bother with, with going to a, a multi-facility park? Also, we find that uh, making reservations has been a problem. I've got this article, which I'm going to put a link to on our website, of course, that uh, can I get that camping spot? And that robots are buying up spots so that they can be resold. Just
1: like concert tickets. I was yeah, surprised to boy, read that.
0: Yeah, me too. Bummer. We have a lot of questions. I'm still talking about the newbie questions. Gas versus diesel.
1: Well, obviously, we made our choice. Um, We talked before about how the many advantages of diesel, but diesel is expensive. And to me, a line in the sand would be... Diesel is a a more more
0: expensive original purchase. Engines. The
1: engines are more expensive. Um, So to me, a line in the sand would be whether I'm just going to be an occasional weekend camper or whether I'm going to spend more time and drive farther than... Uh Spending the big bucks for the diesel engine will give you a lot more reliability, a lot more strength, and... You can't tell with the prices at the moment they're pretty similar the gas yeah, and diesel the, prices the, but that the
0: fuel prices
1: that isn't necessarily the case all the time from but, our experience but
0: understand that the truckers choose diesel and every big over the road truck is diesel and there's a reason for that <laughs> one is that they get a 30% increase in gas mileage two the engine is much simpler therefore it needs l- less repair three it has much more torque, and this is the stuff that gets you out and gets that tow, that trailer underway so that you can go down the road. Torque is more important to me than, than horsepower. That's a huge factor in making this much more drivable. I don't like white-knuckle driving, and the diesel not only pulls away with more gusto, but it also has engine braking, which is much more powerful than on any, any gas motorhome. Or truck. Going downhills can be very white knuckle unless you have the engine brake. Rarely do I use the brakes when I'm going downhill because the engine brake is enough to keep me
1: going at a
0: reasonable speed. But
1: usually people around us are because we can smell it. Right. You don't want to be able to smell <laughs> smell their brakes.
0: So my, que- my choice is if you can afford it, definitely diesel. There is no other choice. Size. These people, most states have a maximum limit of 65 feet. If you buy a 45-foot fifth wheel, you're going to be above 65 feet. Understand that our...
1: Have you ever heard of anybody who gets fined or stopped? No, but I've been reading threads about people having trouble. With what? Doing it or being stopped by the law? Both. Uh Really? The law has gotten into it? Yeah, I think so. Uh So the issue is with a
0: motorhome... And in campgrounds, a motorhome is much more maneuverable. Not only does it steer better, but it also, uh, it, it's more backable, but it also is the length that it is. With a 40-foot fifth wheel and a tow vehicle on the front, you've got another 15, 20 feet, which you can't disconnect until you're actually in the site. So it's much more difficult to back a fifth wheel into a webs- to a to a website, to a campsite than it is a, a
1: motorhome. Just take my word for that. But don't they corner better when you're driving around? Not if it's 40 feet. Curvy. You understand that. Curvy the, roads are where there's tree a tree here and a tree here, and you have to kind of weave your way I in don't, between.
0: I don't think so. Mm. I don't think there's a situation. Because they
1: bend in the middle more.
0: Now, if we're talking about a 30-foot fifth wheel, which would be about as long as we are. Uh-huh. In the final, then it, of course, yeah, it, would be because more it, bends, it bends in the middle, no question about it. that. It's a really big long, but if you're talking about these people with 40 foot fifth wheels and the truck on the front, you're talking about a huge vehicle. If you're new to this, be very careful. We were at our very own campsite at TGO, and a guy blocked off the road for Four hours a, <laughs> when he could not back into his site. Because his trailer was just plain too long. No, it wasn't too long. But he didn't have the he, skill
1: to back it in. He didn't have
0: the skill to back it in. And there were some trees there. And, I mean, you know, that's going to happen in a campsite. And he had to finally, we had to put down his... Uh, his, his jacks. His jacks. And we had to un- unhook the truck, reposition the truck so he could back it in without taking H- out a tree. Pitch it back up
1: again. Put the jacks back up again.
0: And you just... I can't. I just can't see that happening with a motorhome. It just wouldn't happen. We many, take off,
1: Many awnings have been ripped yeah, off during this process. Because we
0: are sixty-two feet with the car on the back, so we take off the car and we are back down to forty-three feet. So that's much. That's that's the size of the trailer by itself without the truck. Now you think about maneuvering that. I wouldn't buy a forty-five foot.
1: Again, it depends what you're doing. There, there are many people well, who, leave who leave campgrounds in seasonal spots, and you bite the bullet and you get it in there, and then it's there, and you don't have to keep backing it in and backing it out. But people who like to travel, it's, it's a challenge every time you stop. And, of course, the whole dilemma about big and small, that's such a personal decision. Yes. Certainly National Forest campgrounds and things like that, you might be better off with a smaller rig. Um, certainly when you are coming in at 11 o'clock at night, there's probably still a space empty that you can fit into, which isn't the case for us. But for me, as a person who camps for more than a week or two, um, a small Camper would just be so limiting in terms of what you could bring and so confining whenever the weather is poor.
0: Well, not only that, but people talk about going to national parks and using our uh, national lands. And if you can't boondock for a week, then you can't use our national lands, to me. That's true. You know, we can boondock easily for a week without much trouble. You get in a small bee and you're going to be. Very limited. Yes, you can get into campsites that we can't get into, but you can't you can't stay for very long because the the boondocking experience is so limiting. The teeny tiny shower and all well, not having enough water and all that sort of stuff. So these are all controversial topics I would think. And I think we're probably gonna get some feedback about this, don't you?
1: Well a lot of it's opinion. Yeah, yeah. But you have to decide for yourself what's important to you.
0: And we certainly want to hear from you.
1: So how about your TV? Are you getting good signal?
0: Is your TV antenna not pulling in the signal? This may help. Troubleshooting. If the wall plate doesn't turn on, check for power. With your multimeter set to the appropriate DC range, carefully probe the socket in the wall. You know that your TV antenna is not just a TV antenna. It is also an amplifier. Did you know that? Yes, I did. Oh, wow. So that when you put your TV antenna up, it has a little button on it, and the light has to be on. If the light isn't on, then the antenna isn't working, and you won't get any much of a signal. I had some questions about this, and I think people don't understand that the TV antenna is electric. Also, in most situations, ours included, you have to turn the amplifier off in order to use cable from, from, the, the, campground? from the campground. So that red light should be off when you don't want to use the antenna.
1: And you don't want to lose track of what you did last, because it's easy to forget that That's you right. turned it off
0: and what they're pointing out here is is that you almost always have a 12 volt socket along with the antenna am- amplifier and check to see if there's voltage there but if there's usually a little red light but if there's there's also a fuse so that if you don't have uh, power then you need to make sure that you do have power
1: it strikes me that yeah. we have had countless issues that were easily remedied by a new fuse yep or
0: a, and i was very grateful or for that. i hate to say this by a slightly larger fuse <laughs> That's a no no, isn't it? Many situations can be remedied by my a slightly slightly larger, larger fuse. fuse. All right, I'll keep that in mind. My- so, we keep, we keep a, a large selection of fuses. <laughs> and if it keeps blowing, you just keep putting in a bigger fuse. Oh, dear. Is that dangerous? It could be. <laughs> but from my electronic experience, I know that that's something that as you should slightly. Out. As spring comes along, you want to check your smoke detector as well as your CO detector and your MO detector.
1: I hate to tell you, it's summer. As summer comes along. This is the June podcast. It's the June
0: podcast, but it's the beginning of, end of spring. I mean, when does
1: summer start? June 22nd. When you can start camping. Between Memorial Day and Labor Day, right? So anyway, check all of your smoke and CO2 detectors to make sure that the batteries are fresh and they will work for you.
0: It seems like the big trend these days is going to... The Art of Downsizing from a Fifth Wheel to a Class B. I don't know. Everybody seems to be downsizing, whereas we don't really think about that. But I have an article here about downsizing. The question of how big an RV should, be, should we buy comes up almost daily. The responses usually include people who bought too small of an RV and want to upgrade, which we've seen many of those. People who bought too large an RV and want to downsize. Some people. People who own a large RV and are are happy with it. Us. People who own a smaller RV and are happy with them. People we know. How do you decide how big a rig to buy? RVs are nothing more than a set of compromises on wheels. The trick is to understand what you are giving up by making a particular choice. Some compromises are immediately obvious. Others only become clear after you are on the road for a while. So, at first, going big is an easy choice. But as I mentioned, you have to park it. Big RVs are impressive inside. There's no ducking your head. There are ceiling fans, lots of floor space, no squeezing past each other. Big RVs have lots of storage. You can take more with you. And they have more weight capabilities. You don't have to literally sort through every last thing you own to see if you have room for it. Downsizing is stressful. Fewer decisions makes the process easier. Big RVs can be appealing to people new to RVing. A bigger RV means RV life can be similar to your suburban life. You can cook the same, you can keep the same supplies in the pantry, put your feet up after dinner and watch your favorite shows. However, going small, we've always been in the medium 35-foot fifth wheel, that's not us, or too small 30-foot fifth wheel. End of the RV spectrum. After six-plus years of travel in that mode, we are changing it up. We are choosing to downsize to a 19-foot Class B motorhome. Mm. Would you do that? If I was driving it. If you were driving it. Mm. Our goals are more flexibility, less pre-planning, parking in standard parking spots, less time in RV parks, more time in state parks, national parks, national forests, and campgrounds. I don't agree with all of that.
1: Yeah, but we don't camp in the summer.
0: And more time boondocking. More time boondocking, staying in friends' driveways. Mooch docking. Oh, mooch docking, sorry. Stopping at roadside stands, attractions, and historical markers. Stopping at many in any beachfront park or county park. Well, those are good good choices if you want to downsize. Tension. The basic tension with RVs is between what you can have and what you can do. Well, that's interesting, isn't
1: it? The more you want to have, the less you'll be able to do. That's what it says.
0: That kind of sums up the, the size issue. Although, taking our car along with us gives us the benefits of both.
1: And throwing time in there. I can think of a number of times we've driven past places that we went back to with the car because it wasn't very convenient to park there with the motorhome and the car, like beaches and attractions. Right, yeah, but, we, but like we have
0: done that. We go to a parking lot. But we lot. have time. Right. We go to a parking lot. We unhitch the car for and the afternoon and go, and, and go back and go back into town and do what we want to do with a car, which is even smaller than a Class B, and we can do all the things we want to do, and then we come back and pick up the motorhome and, and continue on. We've done that several times, many times. And so that's definitely an option which is not mentioned here. But I'm going to, post, of course, post this article. And if you have comments about size of your motorhome or what, you know, size of the rig that you're driving or towing, you know, we are always interested in hearing those. And we will be happy to share those with all of our listeners as time goes along. So where will we be next month at this time?
1: Um, exactly in the same spot we're in this month.
0: And so our listeners can look forward to a fabulous new
1: report, but we won't be in a campground near you. But it is good that we're having some listeners visit us. Yeah, because we live in the middle of the country. Some of you are... Driving right past our home and have stopped by to cheer me up, and I appreciate it immensely.
0: Yes, it's been nice to and see. And those
1: of you who are still planning to come, the doormat is out.
0: <laughs> we are looking forward to hearing about your RVing experiences so that we can put them on the podcast and and let everybody know how much fun you're having while you're on the road. Until next month, then, as July comes up on us, what will we be doing this month?
1: Sitting around. <laughs> I'll be sitting around. You'll be cooking and cleaning and.
0: Oh, I've been how've I been? Oh, how've I been doing?
1: Well, I'm still here, aren't I? Is that all you can say about the hard work that I've been putting in? Making clean and well fed.
0: Oh, giving you all the conveniences of. I'm still here. She's still here. And, dear listener, we hope to hear from you at rvnavigator.com. If you'd like to read Martha's blog and learn all about... All the gory details. All the gory details, including pictures of her wound, you can log on to her blog, which, of course, will be on our website. And pictures.
1: Gory and, and pictures, follow, In And some you can cases.
0: follow the story of this exciting medical adventure as she travels down the road and becomes a... a Back to a mobile person, person. a mobile person again until then ladies and gentlemen we sign off until next month happy
1: travels